0: life is going to throw you some curveballs, and you might have a plan set out for your career and for your family and it doesn't always turn out that way and oftentimes it doesn't and you have to make the most of it take the lemons that you're given and turn it into lemonade and
1: that's really what we're trying to do this is tectonic the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health
2: Matt Wilsey wanted to serve. He spent his early career doing so in government, but eventually was lured to the Silicon Valley tech scene. In the end, he went back to a different kind of service, that which helps people with rare diseases find hope and each other.
1: This is Tectonics. I'm David Shaywitz.
2: And I'm Lisa Sinan, and we're grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's episode of Tectonics. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, Legal excellence and deep analytics capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat Phelps and Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper.
1: So, Lisa!
2: Hey, David. How Good are you? So, uh, you? Or at least talk to you. Um, exactly. I see. Uh, so I'm I curious. See. You know, our 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 guest for today has started a couple of businesses.
1: I know he's remarkable.
2: And one in particular, to solve a problem he himself faced that nobody else could solve. Have you ever started a business, or 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 considered starting one to solve a problem that you have?
1: Well, I guess in a sense, I really have, because uh, for example, at um. Uh, harvest at Harvard, uh, Denny Asiello and I started a pastor uh, initiative, which was one of the earliest uh, uh, efforts to zoom up from being fairly reductive and do early patient-centered uh, uh, training uh, for translational research that ultimately got incorporated into the uh, Harvard curriculum. Uh, we also started it with several other people, including Ravi Thadhani, uh, the Center for Assessment Technology and Continuous Health, uh, which was a uh, sort of an early effort to utilize digital health uh, in um, the assessment of um, uh, bringing the phenotypic data into play. And then obviously more recently with a, with a Astounding uh, Health Tech as sort of an interesting take on uh, advisory where the goal isn't to sort of, you know, be mckinsey uh, uh, light, but really to be like a thought partner for uh, R&D leaders who are trying to figure, figure their way through some of the real challenges you get when you're trying to bring some of the digital and data capabilities to a complex matrix organization. Yeah. And you, Lisa?
2: Um, Once I did. Actually, I started C-Sweetener um, because oh, of great. the barrage of requests for mentoring that I was getting from other women. And I felt like I could solve the problem of spreading the wealth on that with others by
1: by by building a business to do it. You know, Lisa, I realized that actually maybe what I'm doing now, I mean, it's just a cons, you know like an advisory business. So it's sort of, it's it's vaguely in that category but it's not like a radical idea. I thought the C-Sweetener thing you came up with uh, at Aspen was really, really great. And it's fun now to run into people who tell me, oh yeah, C-Sweetener. I'm like, I know the person who started that. Um, <laughs> so it's really, it's like done, you know, these things are intended to have these sort of, you know, influence that sort of last on in, in perpetuity. And you've really done that. I think that's exceptional. Yes,
3: yeah, it's, it's, it's nice to see it living on past my, you know, running it. So it's great. It's exciting to see that in the hands of, of HLTH and, and Janet Gwinnon. In any event, um, Matt Wilsey is gonna have a pretty interesting story on this topic. He's CEO of Gray Science, uh, a company that has laser-like focus on curing a disease known as NGLY, NGLY1 deficiency.
2: I'm going to start that again. Matt Wilsey, CEO of Gray Science, a company that has a laser-like focus on curing a disease known as NGLY1 deficiency, which affects about, get this, 75 people worldwide, or at least that's how many are known. It's a pretty specific job, which arose out of a pretty specific experience, the desire to cure his own child, Grace. But Matt came to life sciences out of necessity, not out of design. His path went through Northern California, where he grew up, Washington, D.C., New York City, and back to the Silicon Valley tech scene adjacent to his hometown. In the end, though, real life came calling. Matt, it is great to have you on the show today.
0: It's so great to be here. As a longtime listener, it's a little bit surreal to actually uh, be on the podcast, and uh, <laughs> I've long admired
1: both of you, so this is fantastic. Thank we you. We wanted to have you on for a really We're long so time. We're so thrilled. Yeah, yeah, it was a great, I'm so happy. Friend of both David and I, so it's great.
2: Uh, You went to Washington, D.C. on the obligatory family trip at the age of eight, I'm told, and were immediately and persistently struck by the calling to public service. And at a time when the White House is in the news constantly, tell us what it's like to have worked there during the Clinton days. You you know,
0: it's so funny because it almost now you can look back and say the good old days, right? We're we're far (laughs) enough away.
1: Scandal free I hear yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, and after after the the Trump years but um you know when I when I first went when I was 8 years old with with one of my brothers and my parents and we did As one my, does. My, yeah. <laughs> everyone does it and my par- my my parents dragged us to everything. We were running ragged and and it just still was magical, right? The 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 first time being exposed to the history uh, the monuments and and our leaders from the past, which are which are flawed, but also quite remarkable in what they accomplished. And um, it for some reason it just really resonated with me that I wanted to do something big, and I wanted to help people. And and that's really where it kind of started. So what did you do in the Clinton White House? What was your job? So I started as an intern, um, which a lot of people love to make fun of. It was post-Monica. Um, and so I- So was it
1: safe? Did you feel like it was a safe environment? A very safe
0: environment. <laughs> I joke I joke even today that um, it's probably the best job I will ever have, Was was an, it, starting as an intern for, for President Clinton. And I was in the scheduling and advance office. So I got to spend a lot of time with him. Um, at events, but also uh, walking around the White House, delivering the president's daily schedule to the East Wing the Oval Office, uh, chief of staff, national security advisors. I mean, it was it was uh, remarkable to see sort of inside the factory, I guess.
2: So, did the experience in Washington, and then later, I know later you were leader in the in the Bush presidential campaign. Um,
0: did those experiences live up to your eight year old person vision, or how they well, how did it differ? in a lot of ways it, it exceeded that. Um, you know, sometimes you're a little bit uh, disenchanted in the sense that, you know, the president doesn't have the time to write a speech um, or his speech writers or, or her speech writers in the future don't have the time to, to write something unique for every single event. And so you hear the same sort of stump speech over and over again. You're like, God, how many times do we have to hear this thing? I mean, it's just like beating a dead horse. And and also, there's the business of politics. So you might be working a room, and you might have to tell someone something, and you have to tell someone something totally different. And so, for 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 the sort of the idealist to me, you're kind of like, wait a second, that totally contradicts what we just heard. And so it's a little kind of deflating. But you know, there's got to be trades that have to be made. It's not perfect.
1: Have you ever read the? I know poor Lisa actually, poor my kids who are or, who are tired of hearing about this. The Caro book uh, books on uh, LBJ. Because they really get into LBJ's exceptional skill at what you're exactly talking about, where he would pull that off apparently in the Senate cloakroom, where literally would have the conversation with one group of people, like, you know, kind of like Southern Democrats on one side, and then with sort of Northern Democrats like in the other part of the room, and would be convincing each of them emphatically that he totally agreed with their totally opposite points of view. I've never read it, but now
0: I'm going to add that to my list because that is what I experienced. And, and you know, at the time it was a little bit deflating, but it was also reality. You know, there's- But um, you become
2: a parent, you realize it's an act of necessity.
0: <laughs> it's, an act, it's an act of necessity and, and there's tough decisions that have to be made. And um, it was actually one of the reasons why I gravitated towards Governor Bush at the time, because, you know, as a governor, you have a little bit more luxury to just sort of say what you think and, do what you say. And, and the president, it's a little less so. You got a lot of people to try and make happy, and it's not as easy.
2: So you also worked for uh, Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld in the Pentagon, and one of your mentors was Condoleezza Rice. What You said she gave you some pretty profound advice that you...
0: Yeah, I mean, before I... So I graduated from Stanford undergrad in, in uh, 2000, and before I went um, to Texas to work for Governor Bush, uh, she and I had a, a meeting in her office at the Hoover Institution, and she she shocked me with her advice. Actually, it really threw me for a loop. She said, "Whatever you do, do not stay too long." And I was <laughs> like, "Wait a second! Like, I feel like I've been building to this moment since probably I was eight years old, maybe even before that. Why would I not stay a long time?" And her advice was, "You really become stale. You get in a rut." You don't improve, you know, that typical toolkit. You're not enhancing your toolkit. You're not being, you're not becoming more valuable to the private sector or to the public sector. So her idea was to leapfrog back and forth and constantly improve. And so I took that really advice to heart and I knew, I knew actually where I had reached my limit where I'm like, I'm I'm done. I need to go back to the private sector and maybe I'll come back uh, to government later. Um, That was before it really started to turn ugly. It's now a lot less attractive and it's, it's a problem because really good people don't want to go into it. So I know you took
3: that advice to heart and headed back to California to help some friends start a company called Zazzle, which every single one of us on earth has probably ordered a cup or something off of Zazzle.
1: Um, How was startup life different from the big bureaucracy
3: you you could come from?
0: Say that again, Lisa, sorry. How
3: was the startup life different from the big bureaucracy you'd come from?
0: Yeah, I mean, talk about the opposite end of the pendulum, right? right? I mean, from the big behemoth of government to you do whatever you want in the startup Plus You couldn't
3: world. get four hundred dollars for a coffee cup anymore.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, I loved it. I mean, it was it was just uh, drinking from the fire hose. I mean, it was so exciting. I would leave work every day and just be like, "Man, this is awesome. I'm my I'm a, my own boss." I don't have to get approval for anything. I can, you know, make deals left and right. And you kind of feel like the wild west a little bit. It feels like freedom. And I think that's why um, people gravitate towards Silicon Valley is that they can, they, if they can dream it, they can build it and see if it floats or doesn't float. So
2: even with all that, you went on to business school at Stanford, your second student at Stanford, at which point I must say, go bears. (laughs) Um, I know you went there undergraduate too. And, and But you went back to learn about finance, accounting, and economics. What, you were not bored enough at Zazzle? What was going on there?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I thought that I had to keep improving my skills. I think in retrospect, it was a mistake. I should have just continued um, in probably the startup world. Um, I had a ton of experience from from Zazzle and um, really could have probably picked any job there was in business development or chief revenue officer. And I just sort of felt like if I was going to be a CEO someday, I had to get that training that I missed by not going into investment banking or finance right Mm -hmm. out of undergrad. And quite honestly, those things, you know, you really don't do all that much as a CEO. You have people that are very, very well trained in those. And what it comes down to is always the people and um, organizational behavior, all the things that people in business school totally dismiss and ignore. Those are the most important things for any organization. And I felt like I already kind of had them one from politics and, and then two from startup world.
2: So you went like straight to the belly of the beast. You went to New York City to join KKR. And how was that? How did that live up to your startup and government experience?
0: Yeah. So I guess now I'm kind of like maybe the, the two worlds, off, somewhere in the middle maybe of uh, <laughs> bureaucracy and startup. But the thing that ultimately I, I realized I was not good at it. And while it is tempting because of the, you know, the ability to make money in, in private equity, it just was not at my core. You know, it wasn't building something and I wasn't good at it. That's probably why also I didn't enjoy it all that much. Um, You know, the numbers don't really come naturally to me. I I have a learning disability, so it's it's hard. You know, it just requires even more work. And um, and it showed it just was not a passion for me. And um, and it was right when the market collapsed. I got there in 08. (laughs) So that's really
1: rough timing.
0: It was yeah. rough. Rough. I, I don't time. know that
2: you need a learning disability to hate 2008.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. He just talk about being thrown to the wolves. Uh, good luck, right?
2: Yeah, really. I, you know, I like to tell people I have a uh, a uh, lack of a math gene, which is my excuse for it. Um, so I know you came back to the Bay Area, now married, right? And um, started two companies, not one, but two companies. First, Howcast a video content company that was in pre-YouTube mode. And then secondly, Card Spring, which was a really successful ad tech company that you got sold to Twitter within two years of founding. So that's crazy.
1: Wait, Must- can I just, I'm sorry, can I just ask a quick question on this? Um, you were talking about these companies. How do you mesh your like, oh, desire to like, what you described as you know to to improve the world or, or, or did that not quite hit yet versus this string where you're at like kkr and then like doing ad tech you know you sound it sounds sort of like the um the before thing in the you know the famous steve jobs commercial you know soda water or do you want to change the world right and this seems more like the soda water stage
0: well you know it's interesting because my one of my brothers used to make fun of me with zazzle because i said we're trying to actually change the world he's like dude, you make custom t-shirts. Like, how is that changing the world? And I was like, you should see the emails that we get from, you know, it might be um, a soldier that that died um, fighting terrorism in the Middle East. And his, his family or his military group would make custom t-shirts when that soldier returned home. And we would get letters of how meaningful that was to that group. And it's just, it kind of hits you right in the face of like, it's just a, it's a um, a product that will eventually disintegrate, but it meant something to them. It's ephemeral, but it still means something in their heart. And, um, you know, the thing for like how-to videos, you know, a lot of people need to learn and, and videos is a great way to do it. So you're actually- Yeah, you yeah,
1: know, I, I actually totally get that. I even wrote a, wrote a book review about like a whole book on implementation that yeah. highlighted those type of videos. And then the ad tech, I'm just saying ad tech is typically characterized as what people do before they feel guilty about not helping people. Right,
0: right, yeah, and it, for for us, it was kind of a, an opportunity to, um, I think, more connect the world, is that we were basically proving that something they saw online actually drove them into the physical world. So it was more about kind of getting them out and connecting them with people and products and things. Um, and and so that's kind of how I sort of maybe rationalize it, making it more efficient. Um,
1: Oh, it's Mark Zuckerberg. He thinks you can save him from the current mess with your ink. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah. Happy to meet with Mark. Yeah.
2: Oh, my God. What a mess. Um, It's so interesting because I think in each of these cases, Zazzle, like hyper-personalization, right? Um, uh, Howcast, pre-YouTube, Cardspring, you know, pre-really the ad tech wild craze. You're kind of in like this Forrest Gump mode of tech, right? Way ahead of, or at the moment in time, you know, and you're out of it now, right? I mean, you're not part of that scene anymore. Does that, how do you feel about that?
0: You know, when, when Grace was diagnosed, I was trying to race as fast as possible, one to help treat her and her fellow patients, but also two to get back to tech. It was a, I gotta get back to tech. I gotta get back to tech. And now I sit back and I say, I'm not going back to tech. There's no going back. If you want the ultimate challenge, jump into drug discovery and development. And, um, And so, where are the best and the smartest people that they should be here? They should be in technology, meeting drug discovery and development. And um, we're starting to see that a little bit. Um, And I think maybe I'm still a little bit ahead of the wave. You know, I kind of, none of those were grand slams by any stretch. and, and and kind of working on a rare disease now, it sort of feels like I'm ahead of the wave again, as I'm hoping the wave catches up or we're in sort of the right place at the right time. Well, let me catch up the
3: audience just a little bit, because by the time you sold Card Spring to Twitter, you knew that you're then, you had a young child and she was struggling, right? With NGLY1 yes. um, deficiency, a disease that at that time was believed to affect only six people in the world or at least six known people. And you started moonlighting, um, as you call it, in the science world. <laughs> Few people teach themselves science from scratch as adult. You had no training in this field, right? And Correct. overnight you basically started a foundation to focus on a rare disease and then ultimately started a, a biotech company. How did you go about making that transition and learning enough to do this job?
0: Yeah, a lot of it actually started on the front line with the clinicians that we had. We'd crisscrossed the country trying to diagnose Grace. We just wanted to find one doctor who had seen a patient in a similar manner And, um, we had great tutors. So one of my, my mentors was uh, Dr. Greg ends at Stanford, um, who's a biochemical uh, geneticist. And he just taught me a lot about genetics. And, And I think this is really shows you how important American doctors are. They go the, the extra mile and then some to really help patients. There's no billable hours here. It's just about, how can I help the patient and the family? And, um, And and so we, we did crisscross the country trying to figure out what was going on and it was exhausting. And so finally I said to Greg, I want to do whole genome sequencing. And he kind of laughed at me at the time and said, no one's even doing whole exome sequencing from a research standpoint with just one patient. This is like so far out of left field, it's not going to work. And I just said, let's take us. let's take a Silicon Valley tech approach. Let's get the data. We might not be able to figure it out right away but we'll figure it out over time and so we did it we did whole genome at two different centers to see if um if they would come up with the same answer
2: interesting so i know you started a foundation at first grace science foundation which continues uh, on and can be found on the web for donations and the like and we we're engaged and you were engaging with everyone and like you said and but you managed to score a pretty pivotal dinner with sure. a Nobel laureate uh, Dr Shinya Yamanaka and he signed on to help tell us about that
0: yeah and this is i think you know serendipity i'm a, I'm a b- big big believer in serendipity and just not you know you never know where a conversation is going to lead so i basically say yes to every conversation
3: I'm the same and, way.
0: <laughs> and and card spring actually was was negotiating a deal with two separate companies that are actually owned by a japanese company called rakuten and around that same time, the founder and CEO of Rakuten, uh, Hiroshi Mikitani, he goes by Mickey, bought a house in, just down the street from me. And so I cold emailed him and I said, hey, um, I'm negotiating with two of your companies. Maybe we should meet up and just talk about entrepreneurship and Silicon Valley. And, and he said, sure. So we became friends. And at, the, at one of our subsequent dinners, he said, hey, would stem cells be interesting to Grace? And I, I knew absolutely nothing about stem cells. I mean, I'd read about them, but I didn't know really much. And I knew about the embryonic kind of debate of stem cells. And I said, yes, yeah, stem cells could, could help. Why? Why do you ask? And he said, well, my friend just won the Nobel prize for um, stem cells. And I was like, <laughs> well, that's
2: probably mine too. Yeah, that's.
0: <laughs> that's, that's That's pretty handy. Um, And he's like, well, would you like to meet him? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So he's like, okay, well, I'll set up dinner. And, um, you know, six, seven months went by, didn't hear a thing. And then I get an email from Mickey's assistant saying, "Uh, Dr. Yamanaka and his wife can have dinner with you in Tokyo next Thursday. And this was like Friday the week before. So it's like six days before. And I just ride her back right away and be like, no way, I happen to be in Tokyo next Thursday, let's set it up. Of course, I had no plans to be there. I uh, immediately went on United and I used all my miles and I bought tickets for Kristen and myself and we flew over and um, had an amazing Kaiseki meal with, with Shinya and his wife. And um, he just said, look, I've, I've accomplished everything I can accomplish in my career. And now one of my career goals is to cure this disease. And, and that kind of serendipity has really blessed us throughout our, our journey.
2: That's so cool. So tell us, tell us a little bit about the disease and, and why it's so um, problematic, you know why it's, so, it's such a focus for you. Yeah, so it's
0: devastating. That, yeah. It, is, it is a devastating disease. I mean, these, these, they're not just children anymore. We've actually identified adults with the disease. Um, actually, a, a paper just came out in, in Iran with a 30-year-old male. The oldest woman that we know is 39 in Germany, but it primarily affects children. Um, it's, it's a neuromuscular disorder where they essentially lack this, this protein um, that's produced by the NGLI1 gene. And it's ubiquitous. So it really affects every system in the body, but primarily the central nervous system. And um, so, you know, the, most of the patients are non ambulatory, um, they, they're nonverbal. They're fully dependent on care 24-7. Um, so it really is re- truly one of the world's diseases known to science and medicine. But the important thing is the lights are on. These kids can understand you know, books, music. They know people and faces. Um, so we're, we're not basically trying to develop a therapy that's multiplying times zero. We're multiplying times one or two. Um, and we do think we can make a real difference in their lives and their families' lives. So, you
2: went out and found basically all the findable people in the world that have this problem, right? There were you found seventy five of them, and you brought them all together in a pivotal meeting, like a community gathering. Um, tell us um, how that went and what what how that helped you advance your goals.
0: Yeah, so we we again, we kind of always try and be ahead of the wave. So we knew downstream, you know we needed large animals but we also needed um, needed a biobank, uh, a repository of patient samples. Um, We needed a patient registry. And uh, the other thing is a lot of these families never actually got their sequence data, which I feel is a fundamental right that that we should give sequence information. Now they can't interpret it and they don't have the software or the training to interpret it, but give them a hard drive with their, their data if it's useful. So we invited every single family known at the time, this was in summer of 2017, we invited them to Palo Alto to meet the scientists that we've been funding around the world. And then we actually built sort of a forward operating hospital, almost like a military hospital, to uh, collect the urine, stool, blood, saliva, and uh, we built a tremendous biobank, um, with the help of Stanford, and now we're shipping those cells all over the world to help um, unlock the disease. And it actually led to a novel biomarker for the disease that we can now we can now identify the disease just from dried blood spots, like I you would get.
1: Let me ask you a quick question about this. One of the things that's I guess striking for folks who are following the you know the inspirational uh, you know just story you're describing is you, there are. Only a tiny number of people, of people like you were saying, or at least known people at NGLY1, and there seem to be almost that many individual, independent foundations devoted to the condition. Um, it's, uh, for example, I've heard a lot about um, some of the work that Matt Might uh, has done, um, uh, and you know the, his efforts to coordinate. To what extent has it been feasible to for folks to collaborate versus have people found it helpful to? Maintain a degree of um, collegial independence.
0: Right. Yeah, it's a great question, and and what Matt and uh, Christina have done is also quite remarkable. I I, I joke that it, you know as we di- as we find new families and connect with them, it, it's sort of like look, getting diagnosed with a rare disease is terrible, but you just hit the jackpot, right? Because you have a lot of brilliant minds working on this disease. Um, either that were brought in by Grace Science Foundation or by, by the Mites. Um, so we, we try and uh, share and collaborate wherever possible. In a lot of ways, we sort of have built this sandbox. We bring the scientists together, but we don't control the scientists, right? So some of the scientists just don't want to share. And, and that's in both directions. That's some of the people that Matt's working with or some of the people we're working with. Um, and, and ultimately, it's their call of what they want to share uh, that's unpublished. We really encourage them to share as much as possible, as quickly as possible, because time is of the essence. We don't have a lot of time for politics. Um, but some people also have just sort of prejudgments about um, about us. Um, and, and, um, and, you know, it's like one of the, the classic tales of being in the arena, right? And yeah. And truthfully, we ruffle feathers. Um, and actually, John Crowley taught me something really early in our journey. He said, "Look, you're not here to win a popularity contest."
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I would rather. John Crowley pop- is,
1: a, is a remarkable uh, CEO and, and father of. of a, if it's a different condition, right? At Amicus Therapeutics, up. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. Up. Yeah, you yeah. know yeah, he's a remarkable person. Like,
0: yeah. And he just said, look, you're not here to win everybody over. You're going to have to make tough decisions that people aren't going to like. And so the thing that I ask myself multiple times a day is, is this in the best interests of the patients, Grace and others? And that's what I go with. And oftentimes it doesn't make me very popular. But again, in the interest of time and speed, right. uh, you got to make them.
2: Well, I have to imagine that even just bringing people together in a peer-to-peer community for such a difficult problem is a huge step forward for their as patients. So where are you in your finding the cure?
0: You know, we're we're actually surprisingly close. We have developed a uh, gene therapy built on top of AAV9. Um, and actually, the, the, the collaboration with Shinya evolved into something with a close collaboration with Takeda. And um, so Takeda made a ngli one knockout rat and they generously shared that with us. We grew it up at Charles River and we dosed that animal using three different route combinations. And um, we took that data and we went to the FDA in October and we had our pre-IND meeting. We're now in our IND enabling studies and we hope to be uh, first patient in, in 2022, second half of 2022.
1: That's quite amazing. Wow. I mean, that's really remarkable. F- I mean, cause there, no one, there's, it, it's incredibly so much unfortunate luck th- th- that you're in this situation. But if one were to be in the situation, the opportunity at least to have so many tools that were fanciful 10 years ago, particularly like you're talking about, like, you know, in the gene therapy, you know, my brother's a lot of work in this uh, in particular, and to watch it come become real. It's extraordinary. And so it's not, you know, you can read, it almost must be scary because you can actually dare to really hope, you know,
0: you can, I mean, it really feels like light at the end of the tunnel. And I'd also say that, you know, one of the kind of the big lessons from this is, is the uh, collaboration and, and camaraderie across companies. So you mentioned Adam and um and you know, Bridge Bio has been tremendously helpful. Amicus, ultragenics, regenics, um, passage bio. All of these people are my former
1: colleagues at Takeda. Yeah, yeah, Takeda. Terrific.
0: I mean, it's it is really kind of cool. I mean, it's it's sort of like what we see in COVID, but this was happening long before COVID. The rare disease world was was COVID before COVID, right? This is, um, you know, what can we do to help each other lift the tide for all boats?
2: Well, and it'll undoubtedly result in breakthroughs that, you know, and I know you you very much believe this, that that affect the ability to treat more common diseases, um, especially in cancers and things like that. So tell, tell us now, you know, backing up a little bit, what is your advice for people whose kids suffer from diseases, not everybody can step out of their career path and start a you know biotech company. So what tangible actions can people whose kids have these problems take?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I think the first thing to do is is to establish really a beachhead. And that sounds a little bit daunting, but it could be as simple as one postdoc 50% time in a lab that's maybe using a simple organism like like uh, fruit fly, Drosophila, it does not, you don't have to go raise, you know, $500,000. You could raise $50,000. And we, we, we've seen this time and time again with different rare disease groups that, that are from humble backgrounds and they're able to do that multiple times. And so the important thing is just to get a little bit of momentum. It's, you know, actually when I had, after I had left the Pentagon, I continued to work with the military in um, the Navy SEAL community. And I asked them all the time, how did you get through hell week? And, And I mean, this is one of the most daunting things any human can go through. And they said, we just focused on one step, one literal step at a time, not like one exercise, like one step in front of the other. And it's very true for the rare disease advocates. Don't look at the total mountain because it's going to be too daunting and you won't succeed. Just put one step in front of the other and it's amazing what happens from the momentum standpoint. And if a disease is novel, just discovered you have one postdoc, that's a significant increase in, in the knowledge. And you just don't know where, uh, someone else might latch onto it and say, wow, that's super interesting. I never thought about that before. And then they pick it up and it's not about money. A lot of the people that are working with us, we're not actually even funding. They love the scientific challenge. And they love being associated with other interesting scientists. And they're not all big names. They're just people that are, are really passionate about kind of showing what's possible. Um, so you've been both biotech entrepreneur now and a tech entrepreneur. Would you give the
2: people aspiring to either the same advice or different advice? What is the advice you'd give to people looking to follow in your footsteps in one way or another?
0: Yeah. I mean, I I think there's a a couple big fundamental differences between tech and biotech, which is the the first is time. Everything takes a lot longer in biotech. Um, And then the second thing is costs. You know, for the amount of money that we raised first as Grace Science Foundation and now our biotech, Grace Science LLC, um, I could have started several tech businesses that would be self-sustaining and not need additional capital from investors. That's not true in biotech. This is very, very expensive. Things take a lot of time. And the other thing is in tech, it doesn't matter if there's competition. So you even look at like Facebook and MySpace or uh, Yahoo and Google. You build the best widget, irrespective of whatever else is out there, you win, hard stop. In, In biotech, you're fighting millions of years of biology and evolution. And so the field is not even at all. You are you're fi- you're fighting uphill every single day, and um, so it just takes a lot more uh, determination in grit and and just i'm never going to give up you can keep hitting me right in the face but i'm not giving up
1: but i think that those are the people that really succeed i mean you look at the some of the stuff with cf and the cf foundation as one of the early examples and everyone you know gave them crap oh you're working with business to do all this but i don't i think there's no more effective advocate than a motivated parent i think it's the most str- i mean i've written about this for a while you know, from. Mercifully, from a distance, but it's been so impressive to like you're you're so struck by it because, it because you become essentially not irrational, but you, look, sometimes you need to be imprudent to really make a difference. And like you're saying, if someone looked at all the things and did one of these McKinsey things, yeah, you'd never do any of it. And precisely because you do say, yeah, but we we need to do it anyway. Like you know, failure is not an option, and that mindset I think is what allows people to do the impossible routine, you know, routinely with realistic expectations, like you clearly have, but it's really the power of motivated patients. And particularly the application to uh, uh, biotech, I think is, ex- is extraordinary.
2: Well, Matt, your story is so inspiring. I mean, you're, I, I you know, I remember meeting you and thinking, wow, this was a cool dude. Um, <laughs> but the, the detail of the story is like, it's, it's, like amazing fairy tale stuff. So I'm so appreciative, and I know David is too, of you coming on the show today. And um, in addition to just knowing that our audience will enjoy it, I hope it raises money for your effort as well, or leads to some great, you know, connection that you'll find along the way.
0: And Thanks some other here. some other advocate might take our model and evolve it and enhance it. It's not perfect, but it's a template that others can follow, and that. We hope that this sort of rare disease unlocking common diseases is is, um, something that continues and becomes notable across the the globe. Thanks again for being on the show. Thank you.
2: Gosh, you know, Matt is not just the greatest guy, but he is such a fascinating in in person. multiple different careers in such different directions. I think it's um, really inspiring to think you can just completely make a 90 degree, you know, or 180 degree turn
1: and then be successful in multiple fronts. He's such a grounded person and a resilient person and um, it, it... you can't help but constantly be um, inspired by him. I usually come away both feeling inspired and kind of almost wishing I didn't need to feel so inspired. You know, like I wish he didn't have to exhibit quite the resilience that he does.
2: Yeah. Well, anyways, it was great to speak to Matt Wilsey today. Um, You can follow David's column, Astounding Health Tech at the Timberman
1: Report. And please remember to give us a review on iTunes if you like the show. And you can follow the inimitable Lisa Sunit and her writing at We are grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's episode of Tectonics. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytics capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper. Take care. Bye-bye.